Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 2nd edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court ruled that a salaried peace officer is not entitled to the Labor Code 4458.2 maximum benefit rates. Here's what happened in the case of Larkin versus WCAB. John Larkin was injured while employed as a police officer for the city of Marysville. The work comp judge determined that Larkin's earnings were $1,008 per week and that he was not entitled to the maximum indemnity levels available under Labor Code Section 4458.2. This law provides maximum benefit rates to certain peace officers' citizens convened by law enforcement authorities for certain limited law enforcement purposes, such as a posse comitatus and to certain reserve peace officers as described in Section 3362.5 who are injured in the line of duty. Larkin argued in his petition for reconsideration that the plain language of the statutes entitled regulatory sworn salaried peace officers to the same maximum indemnity levels. The WCAB disagreed, finding the work comp judge's reasoning persuasive, and they denied Larkin's petition. In affirming the board's order, the Court of Appeal interpreted Section 4458.2 to avoid what it deemed an absurd result. It concluded that the policy considerations reflected a legislative interest in encouraging volunteer service to police and fire agencies. The California Supreme Court granted review and affirmed the Court of Appeal. It concluded that Section 4458.2 does not extend maximum indemnity levels to regularly sworn salaried officers. This conclusion was bolstered by a review of the legislative history governing the relevant statutory provisions. The Court of Appeal upheld the constitutionality of the IMR process in one of the most closely watched cases in California workers' compensation. The case of Stevens versus WCAB involved Frances Stevens, who tripped and broke her foot as she carried boxes of magazines. She was diagnosed with chronic or complex regional pain syndrome and claims to be mostly confined to a wheelchair. She was awarded total permanent disability, and for several years she had the assistance of a home health aide. But in late 2012, the aide was injured. Thus, the PTP was required to submit a new request for authorization to the state fund for a replacement aide, which was denied by utilization review. The denial of the request was upheld after the IMR process. Stevens appealed the IMR decision, but the work comp judge found there was no provision for a reversal since the labor code provides only limited circumstances upon which IMR can be reversed. So Stevens challenged the constitutionality of the limited IMR process. In response, the work comp judge noted that The California Constitution withholds from administrative agencies such as the WCAB 
the power to determine the constitutional validity of any statute. The WCAB denied reconsideration and agreed that it could not rule on the constitutional issue. The WCAB said it does not matter whether the reasons given for an IMR determination support the determination unless the appealing party proves one or more of five grounds for appeal listed in Section 4610 by clear and convincing evidence. Applicant did not do that in this case. The First District Court of Appeal rejected the constitutional challenges because the legislature has plenary powers over the work comp system under the state constitution, and her federal due process challenge fails because California's scheme for evaluating workers' treatment requests is fundamentally fair and affords workers sufficient opportunities to present evidence and be heard. Although Stevens may have lost the war, she may not have lost the battle since she was given a second chance to prove her case on the merits. The court also concluded that the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board misunderstood its statutory authority in one respect. Under the 2013 reforms, however, the board is empowered to review an IMR decision to consider whether care was denied without authority because the care is authorized under the MTUS. Therefore, the case was remanded to the board to consider whether Stevens's request for a home health aid was denied without authority. The Court of Appeal ruled that forensic medical expert reports outside of the AME-QME process are inadmissible. Here's what happened in the published case of Batten v. WCAB. Margaret Batten was injured while working as a registered nurse for Long Beach Memorial Hospital and claimed that she injured her psyche as a result of these physical injuries. Dr. Joseph Stapen was the agreed psychiatric PQME and found that 47% of her psychiatric condition was caused by industrial factors. This was below the required predominant cause threshold for a compensable psychiatric injury. The work comp judge authorized Batten, however, to retain her own qualified medical expert, Dr. Gary Stanwick, at her own expense. Dr. Stanwick found that over 51% of her psychiatric condition was due to her work-related injuries. The work comp judge admitted Dr. Stanwick's report into evidence and found Stanwick to be convincing and persuasive and thus found Batten suffered injury to her psyche. But the WCAB granted reconsideration and concluded that Stanwick's report was not admissible and the work comp judge should have relied on the opinion of Dr. Stapen. The Court of Appeal affirmed the WCAB in the published case. It says that Labor Code Section 4061 Subdivision I prohibits the admission of privately retained reports unless they are prepared by a treating physician. Evaluations obtained in violation of this prohibition shall not be admissible in any proceeding before the Appeals Board. 
In another case, the WCAB agreed that each defendant in multi-party continuous trauma cases may seek its own PQME. Here's what happened in the panel case of Chanchavik versus LB Industries. Estella Chanchavik filed a continuous trauma claim against LB Industries Incorporated and its two industrial carriers, Century Insurance and Twin City Fire Insurance Company. There was no election to proceed against either carrier. Both remained active defendant participants in the case. One of the carriers, Twin City, had already obtained a chiropractic PQME with the applicant. Sentry, the other carrier, sought to obtain its own PQME in orthopedics. But applicant objected, contending that jointly, the two carriers can only obtain one PQME. The work comp judge ruled that Sentry had selected properly an assigned PQME panel in orthopedics. So applicant petitioned for reconsideration and or removal, which was denied by the WCAB, and the petitions were dismissed without considering the merits. However, the WCJ noted that most of the exhibits introduced by the applicant which relate to the selection procedure, show that Sentry was entirely shut out from that process. Applicant argued that permitting each defendant to obtain its own QME evaluation would result in dueling reports that will complicate the proceedings. In response to that claim, the work comp judge said that it was certainly true, and that is why the legislature provided a simple expedient to avoid the problem. Applicant could simply have elected against Twin City, thereby stopping Sentry from concluding any discovery at all. The election process under Labor Code Section 5500.5 is specifically designed for the purpose of ameliorating the procedural morass which has faced the board in multiple defendant cases and to avoid the confusion and delay inevitable where multiple defendants are involved. If applicant does not wish to designate one carrier with whom she wishes to litigate, she must litigate with all of them. All of them must in turn be permitted to defend their own interests as they see fit. There is simply no basis or precedent for designated one carrier as some sort of lead carrier which other carriers must follow, or the carrier in which all other carriers are in privity and therefore bound by its decisions and actions. The Sunline Transit Agency, a government body that oversees buses and taxis in the Coachella Valley, could be fined more than $300,000 for allegedly committing insurance fraud by lying about a workplace injury. Sunline is being sued under the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act by an employee who claims that his supervisor saw him suffer an injury on the job but lied to cover it up. The Sunline supervisor insists he never saw any injury, but a witness account that surfaced later supported the employee's story and has strengthened the case against Sunline. The Sunline lawsuit springs from the injury of Mohammed Mark Azaliat, 
a former employee who worked on a maintenance crew in charge of bus stops. Azaliat claimed he was injured in the Sunline yard when a supervisor demanded that he lift a 90-pound bag of concrete. The next day, he filed a work comp claim stating that he had re-injured his back lifting that bag. But his supervisor responded with a report of his own, saying that he was present while Azaliat carried the bag, but that he had no information about any injury. But his report did not mention the bag being dropped or an argument he had with Azaliat about it. As a result of this report, Azaliat's workers' compensation claim was denied. Later, a new witness, another Sunline employee, said in a sworn court deposition that he was also working in the Sunline yard that day and saw that Azaliat was injured. He overheard Azaliat and his supervisor's argument over a concrete bag and saw the spilled concrete crumbled on the ground. The witness said the argument probably went on for 10 minutes. After this witness came forward, Azaliat was paid about $93,000 for his disability and medical bills. But now Azaliat has taken his case another step farther. His attorneys filed the insurance fraud lawsuit in 2012 after the Riverside County District Attorney's Office declined to prosecute the case against Sunline. The suit was initially dismissed by a Riverside County judge who said Sunline could not commit insurance fraud because it participates in a self-insured risk pool. But in September, an appeals judge issued a tentative ruling overturning the dismissal, which means the lawsuit will likely return to the local court for arguments. If the suit is successful, Sunline will be fined three times the initial workers' compensation claim plus attorney fees and an additional five dollars to $10,000 penalty. The case against Sunline is uncommon because the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act is generally used to target fraudulent claimants but not employers who unfairly deny claims. Cases against government agencies are even more rare. And now our crime report. Yet another major drug maker, Warner Chilcott, has agreed to plead guilty to a felony charge of health care fraud. The plea agreement is part of a global settlement with the United States in which Warner Chilcott has agreed to pay $125 million to resolve its criminal and civil liability arising from the company's illegal marketing of several drugs. Dublin-based Warner Chilcott was acquired in 2013 at, by what at the time was known as Actavis. Actavis took on the Allergan name earlier this year after completing its $66 billion buyout of the Botox maker. Under terms of the plea agreement, Warner Chilcott will pay a criminal fine of almost $23 million and over $102 million to the federal government and certain states to resolve civil claims. The civil settlement resolved allegations that Warner Chilcott violated the federal anti-kickback statute by paying illegal remuneration to prescribing physicians. The civil settlement resolves a lawsuit filed under the whistleblower provisions of the False Claims Act, 
which permit private individuals to sue on behalf of the government for false claims and to share in any recovery. The whistleblowers in this case will receive about $22.9 million from the federal share of the civil recovery. Two former district managers, 49-year-old Jeffrey Podolsky of East Meadow, New York, and 35-year-old Timothy Garcia of Los Gatos, California, previously pleaded guilty to various charges. And last week, a Springfield, Massachusetts physician, 64-year-old Rito Luthara, MD of Longmeadow, Massachusetts, was charged for allegedly accepting free meals and speaker fees from Warner Chilcott in return for prescribing its osteoporosis drugs. 64-year-old Neil A. Van Dyke of Roseville pleaded guilty to health care fraud. He was a California-licensed podiatrist who operated a podiatry practice in Roseville called Placer Podiatry. Van Dyke offered spa-like treatments and performed routine foot care at his practice. However, Van Dyke submitted over $2.8 million in fraudulent claims for reimbursement to Medicare, Medi-Cal, TRICARE, and private insurers. He falsely claimed that he performed more expensive procedures than he actually performed, or that the routine foot care that he was providing was justified because of illnesses or symptoms that were not present. Some of the treatments were performed by unlicensed staff when Van Dyke was not present at his practice. Van Dyke also altered a single-use skincare patch by cutting it into pieces and billed Medicare for multiple application. Van Dyke is scheduled to be sentenced on January 15. He faces a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison and a fine of $250,000 or twice the loss or gain. This case is the product of an investigation by the Office of the Inspector General for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And now our regulatory report. California voters may be called upon to decide limits on excessive drug pricing. Drug pricing advocates have filed close to 550,000 signatures of registered California voters with state election officials in order to qualify a statewide ballot initiative that will revise California law on medications. The proposed California Drug Price Relief Act will require state programs to pay no more for prescription medications than the prices negotiated by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. The VA generally pays 20% to 24% less than any government program. The advocates intend to qualify the measure for the November 2016 presidential election ballot in California. Separately, advocates have been collecting voter signatures in Ohio for a similar drug pricing ballot measure. Both the California and Ohio measures are expected to qualify for and appear on the November 2016 presidential election ballots in their respective states. To qualify the California measure, 365,880 valid signatures of registered voters are needed. 
Signatures are to be submitted to the respective counties statewide, and after certification, the ballot measure is expected to be placed on the November 16 California ballot. The FDA has approved Biodelivery Sciences International Abuse-Resistant Opioid Patch for Chronic Pain. Belbuca is an opioid film patch that aims to treat patients with chronic pain who need round-the-clock treatment. The patch is expected to be commercially available in the United States by March in seven dosages. Belbuca is placed on the inner lining of the cheek, leading to faster delivery of analgesic drug bupropionine directly into the bloodstream. Buprenorphine, rather, has a lower abuse potential than most opioid medications. The Belbuca treatment can also prevent misuse through snorting or injection as the film patch is difficult to crush or liquefy. Since most of the drug is absorbed through the cheek and with little going through the digestive tract, Belbuca could potentially lead to lower constipation, which is a common side effect of opioids. Given the lower possibilities of misuse, physicians can write a six-month prescription as opposed to writing one on a strictly monthly basis. A workplace justice summit at Loyola Law School brought together government leaders, workers' rights advocates, employer organizations, prosecutors, and law enforcement to increase collaboration in efforts to fight wage theft, and other workplace abuses. Labor Commissioner Julie Sue noted that this year is the 20th anniversary of the freedom of the Thai government workers who were trafficked into the United States and forced to work behind barbed wire and under armed guard in El Monte. Sue honored the Thai government workers at a special reception the preceding evening. The Labor Commissioner outlined her four-year history of enforcing labor laws. Total wages and civil penalties assessed in citations have been more than $70 million a year each year from 2012 to 2014 compared to only $25.4 million in 2010. The summit focused on strategies to fight workplace abuses including wage theft, discrimination, and to the gender pay disparity, human trafficking, workplace violence, and retaliation. District attorneys who have partnered with the Labor Commissioner's Office provided training on how to prosecute wage theft cases. Christine Baker, the director of the Department of Industrial Relations, said that this summit will help make workplace justice a reality for even more California workers. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks again for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.